This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, and thank you for taking some time to listen to this podcast. I hope it's a good experience and that it helps to add a little something extra to your stockpile of recovery capital. This is another one of those episodes that I recorded a couple of years ago for a podcast I was doing at the time called My Secular Sobriety. This particular episode features a conversation I had with Danny Castro, who describes how his drinking became a problem and his view of recovery. But before we get started... I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery that you can find at Soberlink.com slash BDS. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety podcast when ordering Soberlink, and you'll receive $50 off their device. And now, episode 267, Danny Castro. So I grew up in a pretty religious household and uh, drinking alcohol and uh, it's very, very conservative, very uh, fundamentalist kind of kind of thing. And so drinking was considered a sin and all this and that. I, I, it didn't bother me any. I had never tried drinking anyway, so I just went along with whatever. But around uh, 16, I'd say, I started questioning uh, some of the, the teachings of that I was being taught. And uh, I would t- just tell my parents and whoever were the teachers at the church, you know, where does it say you can't drink? I don't know. I think drinking was – they made a big deal about drinking. So – and I had never drank and I didn't know anybody that drank. I just found it curious that, uh, they had this really strong teaching and then, uh, they couldn't back it up, uh, necessarily in the Bible or whatever. And I've always been, yeah, I've always been that kind of guy that, um, questions everything since like second grade. Um, and yeah, the Bible, it paints some negative pictures of drinking, but there was nowhere where it necessarily said it's a sin or something, whatever. Uh, even though it might have said some of their strong language, like drunkards go to hell or something. But anyways, it, it wasn't it wasn't good enough for me or whatever. And um, so I told myself that at 21 I would I would drink if I wanted to. So I did at 21. Uh, uh, we were in New York City as a for a family uh, vacation, and we went to me and my brothers went to a bar and. It was a comedy thing, and I ordered a Heineken and a Coke, and I just thought that might have been a drink because I didn't know. I had never drank before, 
So I, I, you know, some, I thought it was going to be something like a Jack and Coke or something, but I said Heineken and Coke. So the lady just looked at me kind of weird and brought a Heineken and a Coke. And what I did was I drank, I thought it was weird that she didn't pour the Heineken in the Coke. Cause I thought that's what, so I drank half the Coke and then I poured half of the Heineken into the Coke. Anyways, uh, <laughs> you really didn't know how to drink, my, did you? <laughs> no, 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 man. And I was 21 and, um, I thought it was gross and I was like, oh, I wonder why people do this, whatever. Anyways, I went on tour shortly after I was 21, 22. I went on tour with this band uh, that just loved drinking and I still wasn't a big drinker. Uh, so, you know, this guy, the drummer, uh, what was the patch? He's actually the drummer now of um, Delta Spirit. Uh, and so we were on tour and him and I would be drinking all the time, but this guy would drink, you know, four beers at a time in the morning and I would drink like half a beer and I'd be wondering, geez, how does this thinking? But by the end of the tour, I was just having a lot of fun, you know? So I got home and then the partying began, but, um, it wasn't that crazy. I remember having weeks where I might drink two beers or something for the whole week and go out drinking one night and only have two beers but everything so i was 22 23 24 that kind of party lifestyle little by little got worse and worse but near um any kind of alcoholic levels it was still you know manageable it wasn't even a question but when i turned 25 i had a panic attack and uh, i didn't know anybody that had panic attacks or anxiety or any kind of depression issues I pretty much grew up in a bubble and um, the panic attack, it completely destroyed my life. It was sitting upside down. I couldn't make sense of anything. I was terrified. Um, in the morning woke up. I mean, what happened was when I went drinking one night, uh, went home, fell asleep the next day, I was just walking around sober and I just had a panic attack for no reason. Uh, just, completely terrified and I uh, went to the hospital and they said nothing was wrong with me that it was probably a panic attack and I asked them what that was and they just said you know you just got you something whatever it is anyways uh, I kept having panic attacks after that uh, for you know in the morning and the, it's um, it, it feels like if you're like if somebody scares you comes up from behind you and scares you and, and gets you good, but it's just for no reason. And it's, and it lasts for a while. Like uh, it could be an hour or something. And it just feels like you're terrified. Like that initial jolt of, you know, someone just scared me that happens. And then it just lasts. Like if you're in a war zone or something and you're terrified, I imagine a, I've never been in a war zone, so I shouldn't use that analogy, but any scary situation where maybe you're in a fight. I mean, I have many scary situations now that, that I've been to prison and stuff, but uh, it's just a feeling of, of terror. And you think you're going to die. You think you're having a heart attack. You think you're, I had crazy ideas. I would go to the hospital and say, Hey, I think my brain's too big. Like, what does that even mean? It's just, you start thinking of crazy things. Oh, my heart's too big. My brain's too big. Uh, you know, I'm not breathing. And they're like, you're not breathing. You're I'm like, no, I'm, I'm positive. I'm not breathing. I'm going to die or something. And so 
So that started happening regularly. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm never sure, but I think it was something that had happened when I had a cough a couple months earlier and it was kind of like a, like a recall of the terror because I had, I had this cough and it closed my throat up and I couldn't breathe when I went in and, um, I got scared. I had that scary feeling. And it was just like that a month or so later when I had my first panic attack. Anyways, um, I went to the doctors and I was too scared to take any medications for panic attacks or, you know, they try to give you Xanax or depression meds. I just didn't want, I was too scared. The panic attacks kind of make you scared of everything, including medicine. And so I resorted to the thing I knew that made me feel good. So that's the alcohol. And I started, that's when I started drinking in the morning to take care of the panic attacks and at night all the time. Um, so I was in a band at this point and we were touring a lot of it. Did the alcohol take it off? Take, take them away? Yeah, it, it, uh, it was to me, it was a miracle, right? Cause, uh, like I said, I wasn't drinking before that panic attack. I, what mornings I wasn't even thinking about it. I'd wait till the weekends or whatever it was. And, and now that I had these panic attacks for about two weeks, I wasn't drinking cause I thought, Oh, I don't want to make it worse. Uh, but then when I saw that the panics weren't going to go away, I was like, there's no way I can make this worse by drinking little did I know. Cause it was going to get far worse, but, uh, because of the drinking, but uh, at the time it did work it, I drank, uh, you know, like a, a beer or two in the morning. And I thought, wow, like I can actually live my, because now I don't have panic. Like the, the fear is gone. I'm, I'm feeling good and buzzed. But as you know, as anybody, as any alcoholic knows, you know, two beers might work the first time in the morning, but then you got to have, I was starting to have eight or nine or 10 before noon. Um, and of course I was, I was touring and I was in college at the same time. So I'm 25, 26, 27 around there. And I'm not managing it well. I don't to college. Uh, I would take a 40 to school in the morning. So when I'd start feeling the withdrawals or the, the shakiness, I would head to the bathroom with my backpack and, you know, down the 40, go back to class. Then I'd have to drive home. And then, um, so I couldn't do well in, in college. Uh, we had to stop touring cause I'd be blacking out. Like if I had a 20 day tour set up, I'd be blacked out and falling off the stage, uh, during the first show like in Arizona or somewhere before the tour even really got started. And we'd have to turn around and, and bring me home because there was no way I was going to, you know, finish the tour. I was getting blacked out. I didn't remember the first show. And I asked the guys like, Hey, what's going on? Uh, and they, the next morning as I'm drinking, they'd say, Hey man, you blacked out after the first song and you fell off the stage after the first song, you know, when we had to play like an hour and I'd be like, oh, I can do the rest. No, I'll take it easy. And no, of course not. So they would turn around. And uh, my band has a couple of my brothers in the band, so siblings. So you know they're not going to put up with any any shit. Uh, they're just going to be like, we got to go home. They're not going to let the singer kind of bulldoze the situation. Um, so I was uh, finally um, 28. I started taking, see, I stopped playing in the band so much. And I started, that's when I started realizing, man, I think I'm killing myself with the drinking. Cause up 
to that point between and uh, 28, I started, that's when I was drinking in the mornings and just getting blacked out every day. And for, you know, six months straight, I'm drunk and then two weeks off and then, you know, trying to fight it off. So finally I, um, I was trying to take school seriously at least to get a foothold and maybe do the band after school or something after I got a bachelor's. So I barely finished college at 30 years old uh, with a lot of drunk kind of episodes that were just bad. You know, like I would have a couple months sobriety and then within three days I would end up uh, at a, at a sober house or something. And at one of those times, my parents actually took me to Mexico where, because here, you know, once you're sober, you can walk out of the sober house because we have, you know, certain rights. Well, in Mexico, um, once you, uh, once you get committed to one of these places, you, you, you can't get out. It's more like a little prison or whatever. And so I ended up at this one place that was, that was hell. I mean, uh, they wouldn't let me drink water for four days because they were like drying me out or something. And they said that, uh, that it would have, that my liver could explode if I drank water. And I was like, man, I really don't think that's true. I need like, I was fucking dying there. Oh, sorry. That's no, okay. You can cuss. It's okay. Here, but, no, um, you can. <laughs> this is so, explicitly um, rated, so that's fine. Yeah, so, uh, okay, good. And it's secular, right? I mean, nobody's Yeah, cares, no one's um, But, um, so, man, I had some, some seizures in there at the Mexico place. I had seizures and, and just uh, hallucinations, hallucinations while I was awake. And, and I was just dying for some, um, for some water and they were giving me like this pinch, this pinch of, of vodka every couple hours. Cause they thought, yeah, they were, they thought, Oh, you know, we should wean them off the alcohol by giving me was scalding hot. I couldn't even drink it. Right. Cause I was like, Oh great. I'm going to have a little bit of vodka. And it was so scalding hot that I couldn't drink it. And so I would hold on to it till it got warm. And as soon as it was warm, they took it away and gave me a scalding one. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea how they these guys were sadistic. <laughs> they weren't wanting you to get better. <laughs> I thought I was going to die, man. There was no yeah. like medical facility there, and having seizures. I could. I didn't sleep for four days. Everything was bad. And then finally, on the fourth day, they gave me uh, water, and then like uh, some kind of shot. I mean, by that point, I didn't care what they did to me, but they brought out a needle and they gave me a shot of vitamins, supposedly. And, so someone popped up like a Xanax out of nowhere. And I'm like, where was this stuff in the beginning, man? But, um, so I finished college at 30 and I, I applied to graduate schools right away. I was going to do a master's. So I got accepted to Rutgers, uh, up on in the East coast, uh, New Jersey. And, you know, I think I can stay sober because I'm going to be in a really good program working on a master's or whatever in English. And they were like, okay, you know, you seem to be doing good or whatever. I was sober for a month or something. And, uh, um, and I started, I packed up all my belongings in my in one car and, um, drove and I got to, um, Arizona, like not that far drinking there. And, uh, ended up getting arrested in Flagstaff and uh, 
so I spent the night in jail and then the next day they just let me go and said, Oh, we'll see you in court or something. Cause it was just, uh, just, a, they just pulled me over and I was drunk or something. So then I drove and I told myself, man, I got to stay sober. So I made it all the way to St. Louis uh, to a friend's house there and I got blacked out there and I ended up in the hospital just, I don't know, you know, how it goes, probably drinking and uh, you wake up in the hospital. And then, um, uh, that was, uh, they wanted me to turn around, right? They were like, you gotta go home. And I was like, no, I gotta, I gotta go to school. So then I get to sober, <laughs> sobered out for whatever, three days as I drove to Jersey. And then I got there and the first night I got, I met some roommates and I got hammered. And the next day I woke up with, uh, bunch of beers around me you know in my new room half empty beers and, and closed beers and there was a fridge full of beer and I just asked myself man if I stay here and I try to do school like this on the east coast without any family around I'm not going to do well uh, probably going to die here so uh, I was looking at the I, my favorite thing to do in the morning was to just look for half empty beers and drink them all um so I looked at that beer in my hand and I was like, man, I got to go back home. So I put it down and I drove back to, um, back home. And on my way back home, I emailed a, a, a famous Rutgers professor in philosophy. And I asked him, Hey man, I, was, I told him, Hey, I'm driving home cause I'm an alcoholic and I can't do this out here. I was like, I was really looking forward to sitting in your classes. And he, he put in a word for me in LA at this uh, school to do my master in philosophy over there. So I was switching over from English to philosophy and with his word alone kind of reached out to him and connected and was honest about, Hey, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I can't, I'm barely staying alive out here. Um, he kind of and put a word in and I drove straight to LA to start the program in a week or something. So I get there and I start the program, uh, masters in philosophy. And I, uh, I lasted about two semesters. Uh, you know, I was drinking, I was living in my car, just getting hammered at the end of the night. I wasn't doing well, you know, just kind of barely playing the part there. So, at, you know, I'd go to class, I'd go back to my car, I'd drive around, and then I'd go get some bottles of Jack and get ready for the night just so I could go to sleep at night. And, I mean, one night I ended up outside the car in my in my boxers, something passed out on the grass in front of the school. Cops show up, me to the drunk tank, and then I come back, I get out, and I'm like sitting in my car in the middle of the night, you know, when I was released from drunk tank, just wondering, like, what's going to happen to me? So, right around that time, I got an off a show in San Diego with a band called the Flowbots. Um, to open up for them. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go do this, uh, one quick show. And that was the night, May 22nd, 2013, 2012, I think. Uh, I think so. And, uh, so I went and played the show. I had been drinking, you know, the last couple of weeks. And, um, uh, at the show, my brothers weren't playing. I, I got a couple other musicians to play with me. I'm the singer. So I just kind of, pick some guys that didn't know my drinking too much, you know, and, uh, played, uh, met this, this girl, uh, that I keep in touch with to this day and just got blacked out. And the, the other guys went home cause they drove separately. And I was there at the show with the instruments and, and the car and by myself. 
Uh, supposedly, I was waiting to get paid at the end of the night, but really, I was just wanted everybody that I knew to leave so I could drink without anybody, you know, looking at me that knew me. So it was a sold out show, and I was just, you know, living that living that um, life where, uh, you know, you play a show, a lot of people there, and just party. Got drunk, blacked out. Last thing I remember was having shots with the management of the a bar. It must have been past two or something. And um, and then they said, I, I, that was it. I drank, was doing shots at the end of the night. I black out. I wake up in the hospital, and I was told that I was in a car accident, that I, that I, I think the officer was telling me that I killed somebody accident. Uh, but I didn't know what that meant. I'd never been to prison. I was like, okay, so what do we do next? And he said, well, you're going to County and then you can bail out and you'll have to deal with this in court. So I, it was unreal. So I, I bail out and I find out that there's uh, I, I, I hit another car. Apparently I don't remember any, any of it. Uh, and um, they said I hit another car and that the other people almost died, but apparently nobody did die. They were just very, very injured. Very, it was a grave uh, injury or whatever. Um, I, nothing happened to me in the car accident. I think maybe a bruise or something. But um, apparently, I flipped my car over. It was two or three in the morning. Uh, hit the other car, almost killed them, and that was it. And they uh, gave me uh, nine and a nine years, eight months for for that because uh, it was a third DUI, and there was uh, what they call a great bodily injury. Um, so kept drinking. Um, I just couldn't stop drinking. I mean, it was so illogical. Right. And I think we all, yeah. And even before, while I was dealing with my court stuff, uh, you would think that after so many weird, hard things, whether it was Mexico or just my parents being dragged through hell this whole time drinking, um, uh, and, and just weird other things that happened to me, you know, as I was hanging out with, with, um, people that were just totally messed up on drugs on the streets, uh, stuff that I didn't, I haven't mentioned in this, um, in this, uh, in this story, but, uh, you know, uh, everyone has these weird, weird stories of just being blacked out and waking up somewhere and not knowing what happened. Uh, none of, none of that was getting me to stop. So I'm going to court. I'm not stopping. I guess sentenced. And now I'm like, whoa, nine years. I can't believe I'm out, by the way. It's crazy. I just got out three months ago. Um, but, um, yeah, thank you. And, uh, it was crazy when they send, when they give you nine years, it, it's, if no one's been to prison, it's crazy. If they give you one year, I was thinking one year, uh, two, one year, two years, three years, nine years at 85%, which means, you know, they only knock off 15% as opposed to half time or something. Um, so I'm terrified and even that wasn't enough. And I get to prison and I'm drinking there. Uh, within the first two months, I was just getting hammered. And one night, I, I'd say, uh, within uh, still within the th first three months or so of prison, I get blacked out. And apparently, so I'm in the I'm in the area of prison known as the GP, which just means that uh, that's where all the gang activity is. Really, it's a it's the other side is called uh, protective custody, right? So I'm in the regular GP because of that's just where they, there was, there was no issue with me being there. Um, so apparently one night I'm blacked out on prison wine 
which you just make wherever in a big trash bag full of rotten fruit or whatever and sugar and, and you just ferment it and you make it every three days or so and I black out and apparently the last thing I remember was doing meth right I've, I've never done meth I've never really done drugs in general I've not even weed or anything so I'm doing meth don't know why I was just blacked out and apparently I, I had ordered it from the, what they call a shot call lead gang members of the Mexican crew I I had called him over and $25 worth of math. I mean, there's everything in prison. Uh, I think my cellmate had been asking me to do it or something and we were both drunk. So I do it. And that was it, man. That was December 6, 2014, I think. Uh, and, um, it was pure hell. It, it took away the, the, the drunk right away. And I was just grinding my teeth and, I couldn't breathe for about eight hours. It was, I was struggling to breathe of just like catching my breath. It was painful. It was, I mean, terrifying. I thought I was going to die. It was like, it was like all the panic attacks I'd ever had all rolled up into one massive panic attack that lasted about eight hours. And I was yelling for help and I was losing my mind and uh, I was getting in trouble with the gang members because they don't really like attention being called, uh, you know, like, you know, someone's freaking out on drugs or something. It's going to make the whole area look bad. Like, oh, they're selling drugs in here. Now we got to go search everybody's cells or something. But um, I, I didn't. So I finally the, the cops came and they took me down to the nurse and they're asking me, are you on drugs or something? I said, no, I'm just having a PTSD, you know, flashback or something. And I need anything to help me. And they checked my vitals. And apparently they were scared enough to give me. Xanax. It was agony, but you know, that's essentially or whatever. And when they told me they were going to give me Xanax, I was just like, oh man, I'm going to be, I'm going to be fine. It was like 40 minutes. So they gave me a big dose. And in 40 minutes, I was good. I fell asleep. They took me back to the cell. <clears throat> and that was it, man. That was the last time I drank. Um, that was towards the beginning of my prison sentence. And then from there, you know, you get moved around prisons. I ended up only doing five years because I earned uh, uh, Prop 57 passed was the law here in California. And I earned uh, that let you earn time off your sentence by doing school and a bunch of other stuff. But I ended up doing three, three AA degrees, another, another bachelor's degree and a master's degree all within like three years or something. And, and I ended up getting about like off or more. And, uh, so I ended up doing about five and a half years in prison and, uh, there was alcohol everywhere. Did you, that. um, go to any kind of support yeah. group or anything while you're in there or did you just stop on your own? Yeah. I stopped on my own at first because, uh, I think the way I describe it was, um, uh, I had a certain trauma, like a PTSD moment that led me to drinking, which was the breathing thing I had mentioned. I couldn't breathe the, that one day and I ended up having a panic attack. So that pushed me towards drinking because I didn't know it. I didn't, I wasn't well informed enough to find a different answer. And then the thing that pushed me out, out of drinking was another trauma, which was this eight hour panic attack that was a direct result from drinking because the drinking led to the meth. And so there was a trauma that pushed me into to drinking and there was a trauma that pushed me out of drinking because drinking was no longer an option. Cause I thought, 
well, now I can't fix my problems with drinking because it might lead to a, a meth because that's just the kind of addict alcoholic I am that, you know, once I'm drunk, hey, let's look for more stuff. And so I was left with uh, nothing essentially as far as what could help me with my panic attacks because I was still having panic attacks in prison, as you can imagine. And um, so, but the, that's not the reason I didn't search, you know, AA or or any help. The reason was, in the beginning in prison, you're, you're somewhere, you're in a prison called reception and that's where you wait to be assigned to another prison. And I was there for eight months. So I was drinking for the first three months and then for the next five months, it's like the hole. And so there's no AA, there's nothing for you. Then I got moved to a level four prison for another couple months and there's nothing at level four prisons. Most of the time there's no AA, there's no church. There's so, couldn't get any help there. And then they moved me to a level three, but that level three at Salinas was, uh, it was more like a level four that was trans. They told me we're moving you to a level three, but it's actually a level four that's starting to transition into a level three. And those kind of transitions just take forever, man. So I was there, I was there for about two years and there was nothing. There was an AA program there, but the waiting list was like six months. Uh, there was church, but it was always packed out. And there was like, um, so there was no help. Is a there. level four like maximum security, and then level three would like be more like medium or minimum security? So the the shoe, something they call SHU, is is like that'd be like the maxed out. Uh, other than like um, like death row, it goes death row, then it goes sh- the shoe, which is just essentially the hole, like being locked up, and then level four is right after that, and. There's just minimal yards and everything. That's the maximum. That's level four is the maximum for a regular yard, and then level three is still pretty high, especially on the GP side. There's still riots and, and gangs and all this. Even on the on the what they call the SNY side, it's really hard. Uh, level threes, it's like all the level four guys that are barely getting out. Uh, so it's still pretty rough. And then level two finally is pretty calm, and then level one is its own crazy thing because it's just got a bunch of knuckleheads there that are doing like six months time. And so everyone's fighting in level one and doing drugs on level one. I think level two is like the the most peaceful one, surprisingly. So I go through finally, and that's where I met Gabe uh, Rosales down there at RJD. And there it was just so many programs. And I just, I was doing about 22 and a half hours of, of self-help stuff. I just joined no though so i was there at hard rjd and uh that's when i really started that self-help uh, you know anything that i could get into but i mean at that point i'd been sober and and i had i had cellmates that were making wine or white lightning and hard alcohol and everything doing drugs shooting up right there next to me and there was just nothing you can do you know you you're either gonna somehow find some kind of footing to stay sober or you're going to die and the prison system's not going to help you. Yeah. Okay. So you, um, so you, so you were going to, to that and then you, you're, you're out now and, uh, how are things going today? Yeah, I'm out. Um, you know, everybody, uh, in prison, they fantasize about getting out and they think it's going to be one thing. They think it's going to be a certain thing, a certain great thing. And it is great to be out, but it was far different than I thought it was going to be. I'm fortunate. I have family that was waiting for me and a place to live. And 
you know, a friend gave me a job and, and, um, I was good to go, but it was, it was the first day was really, um, you know, in prison, we make fun of each other. The people that are sober, uh, we make fun of each other and we say, Oh yeah, when you get out, you know, you're probably going to be one of those guys that just starts drinking again. Uh, and we all deny it. We all go, no, man, I'm the real deal. I've been sober five years. Oh, I've been sober three years. I've been sober 10 years. And then we still give each other a hard time. It is, the humor in, in prison is really dark, as you can imagine. You know, sometimes your friend commits suicide and you find some way to, you know, live in this dark, dark humor, I guess. But so in my, I was like, I could never drink again. Like, I can't imagine coming back to prison and doing work again. So of course I'm not going to drink. And when you're in prison, it seems like the most obvious thing that you will not drink. And then you get out and you realize how easy it is to drink, but not only the access to the alcohol, because there's alcohol in prison, but there's a certain flow of life that you forgot about while you were in prison that just can easily sweep you up into a bar or, you know, you haven't hung out with women. So, you know, maybe a woman wants to come over and, and have some wine. And it's just so normal that after like the third or fourth day when I got out, I was like in shock. I was like, wow, I can see myself drinking. Like I would, I would totally explain it away. I can just see myself going down to the liquor store and having one or two, you know, uh, 24s or something. And I thought, wow, this is why guys drink. Uh, because it's, it's not necessarily their fault, but if you don't have something figured out and I don't want to say figured out because that makes it sound like you figured it out and you're better than the guy that's still drinking. And that's not the case. I think, I think something else happens where you're just fortunate and you're just not drinking anymore. Something happened either in the brain or to this day, I still don't know what it is that, that has kept me sober, but no, I haven't drank even when I got out, but I definitely saw how easy blames and some of my friends got out and they started, they started drinking already and getting blacked out and doing whatever. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed out, but I totally understand how when you get out, it's just this big place that you think you're, you're going to be fine. Uh, but anyways, yeah, I started a second master's degree up at Cal state LA. Um, so that's my main thing. And then I work with a, a buddy in comic books as a writer and um, hanging out with my parents who are happy to have me sober at home. And I hang out do, doing the band with my brothers. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's been three months and I've just been really productive and uh, happy to stay sober. Uh, it doesn't seem easier or harder than before. It just seems like a thing that I think about every day. And, and some people are surprised by that, but I guess they don't understand. They, they ask, do you think about drinking? And I go, yeah, every, every day, you know, when I wake up, I dream about it. Uh, when I wake up and then during the day when I'm on a jog and I see a, a, a 40, a bottle of beer that's half empty and I could just like, I mean, that's what I would do if, if back in the day, if I saw a bottle in the middle of the street and he still had beer. I just grab it and drink it. Um, free beer. Um, so how so did you I learn to drink. deal with those? Uh, out here, I, I guess I'm still learning, but 
I think meditation in some weird way. I started going to AA, obviously, right, mm-hmm. right when I got out, but mm-hmm. uh, they closed that down for uh, quarantine. Or oh, whatever. that's right. Yeah, uh, I'm going to have to ask you a couple questions about that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, good. And then, um, but uh, I'd I'd say some kind of mix between like meditation and working out or something, as far as not drinking out here. And the reason I say that is because I, I equate jogging i jog a lot like 10 miles a, a day or whatever it might be i equate I equate that with meditation and meditation all i mean by that is yeah all i mean personally by that is i think about it i think about my feelings as i'm jogging and then when i see a bottle and i want it i ask myself i go through every scenario and i go you know, if you want to die, you can do that. If you don't want to die, you don't do that. And if you're okay with dying, uh, maybe there's a better way to die. And instead of drinking and just weird thoughts, like philosophical thoughts on and on about death, about drinking, about love, about life to the point where I go, you know what? I'm okay. I'm okay right now. I, that's going to bring me far more suffering and just hold on. And if there's a moment where you really want it, just hold on an hour or two. You're not going to want it that bad later on. And I really relate to what you're, you're saying. Yeah, I uh, yes. I got into meditation. I'm not so good at about doing it now, but um, gosh, what was it, 20 some years ago or whatever. And what I learned from the meditation was how to let go of my thoughts that I didn't have to grab onto them. And also running. I always equated that with meditation. I love running and I haven't been doing that much lately either. But um, when I would run, the thing about that is that after a while, your body just kind of gets into a a groove, you know, and you, and it's like, it seems like it's, it seems like you're not putting the effort when I'd first start running in the beginning of the run, it seemed like, God damn, damn. But after a certain period of time, it just kind of flows. And then my mind just kind of, I would, I, I would think about things like you were saying, I'd think about, I'd solve some problem while I'm running, you know, it's great. That's great. Yeah. I love it. And uh, of course it shoots, you know, makes you feel good at the end of the run. Yeah. yeah. Um, the endorphins or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. So, um, and so are you, are you still playing music? Are you, are you, you're in a band? Yeah. I'm in the band. We're recording and stuff and just, you know, hoping to play some shows, uh, in LA probably when things open up other than that. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of hard now, I guess, in the music business to actually, you can't really perform. Yeah, Totally interesting isn't it yeah yeah and i don't think that's gonna be a normal thing for a while now maybe mid late next year or something i don't think so either i think i asked gabe the same question if you do when you do get back out to performing do you think it's going to be different um sober you think it's going to be a problem Mm, no not for me personally but only because i've been playing live since i was 11 and uh, and then I started touring and even playing in my, in my rock bands at 16, it was always sober. It was always sober all the way to 21. And even, so I was already playing okay. for a long time. Okay. Yeah. So it was so, very normal for me. Yeah. Now I got to ask you about AA. Did you have any problems with it? <laughs> yeah. With but, AA? <laughs> and what did you like and what did you not like? Uh, like once. Okay. So, I mean, um, before prison, I, I never really got it because I didn't consider myself an alcoholic. Uh, and then on December 6, 2014, when I finally 
had this this long lasting sobriety. The first thing I told myself was <laughs> after doing the meth, right, uh, and and taking the Xanax and being able to go to sleep and waking up that day, I December sixth, I asked myself, well, what am I going to do? Going to drink again and go through that again? And I I was so I was so fucking uh, desperate to get sober that I said, I'll, I will say and do anything to stay sober. And that day I said, I don't care. It was like the hardest thing to call myself an alcoholic, right? Uh, uh, my whole, whole drinking career, I was trying to not call myself an alcoholic. People would call me an alcoholic. I'd go to AA meetings because of the first and second DUI. And I'd be telling them, oh, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I just messed up this time or whatever. So for whatever reason, I was always fighting that, that name, that type, that, that identity. And that day when I stopped drinking, I completely took that name upon myself. And, uh, and I called myself an alcoholic and it was really extremely helpful to me. Now I didn't know much about AA at the time, but then as I went to a couple meetings, um, it was apparent that that was something like the first step. Right. And, um, oh, hold on. I'm recording. Um, so that was the first step apparently. And I'm not too familiar with it even now, because like I said, I did the first three years in prison without access to AA. And then at, at Donovan where I met uh, Gabe, there was some, but their main program was, their main substance abuse program was not based on AA. It was based on something else. They called it substance abuse treatment or something. It was more with cognitive behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Like smart recovery or something. Right. And that's, that's kind of more what they were doing at RJB. Perfect. So two things though, that I did take away from AA that I, that I kind of found com- completely fit exactly what I was thinking was the first step in the 12th step. And, and even now I'm not as familiar to know them like word by word, but to, to get to some place where you can say I'm an alcoholic is near impossible. And a lot of people die before they can like get to this weird identity. And now I'm super proud of anyone that I'm an alcoholic and it's a thing for me. I just love that. It helps me stay sober. But, um, the 12th step was like the, you know, if you forget to help, what's, it's dangerous for yourself. Helpful to help. Yeah, I've always helped. Uh, found it helpful to help others. And um, as far as the rest of it, uh, I don't think I'm f- familiar enough with it. Uh, from what I've heard, you know, the statistics aren't that great for alcoholics in general um, or drug addicts. Even I think that the statistics are so so. Uh, bad, even for people that do AA perfectly. I think I forget what the numbers are, but it's like AA had like the best. Uh, yeah, and and even that small thing was like the best thing possible for a long time. And I read I read this book called Beautiful Boy. Oh, you know I've got the book, and, but I've never uh, read it. Author kept in touch with me a little bit. Okay, cool. And the author he kept in touch with me a little bit as I sent him a couple emails after reading the book. And he's somebody that, I mean, in the book, he talks about this, how 
there's just been no research. There's been not enough scientific research on alcoholism and addiction. It's just been stigmatized and our, our choice as a country and as a world, we're just like, Hey, let's punish people for when they drink too much instead of trying to figure out how to stop drinking or whatever. Um, yeah, but do you have any questions about specifically about what I might think about AA? No, not I'm really. Curious not since, really. Um, not really. I was uh, the only reason I asked, and I was curious, is because um, so my story, and I won't take too long with this, but um, so I, I was I was 25 years old when I got sober, and for me it was uh, that third DUI and losing my job, and just life was a mess, and the only place I knew to go was AA, so I went to AA. And I, I wasn't, I didn't really identify as an atheist or anything. I was okay with, you know, but the God stuff kind of what I did with that, I just kind of said it it bothered me, but I just kind of set it aside, you know? And for 25 years, I set it aside (laughs) until I couldn't anymore. And then I kind of came in conflict with, with some people and um, conflict with AA in general, but I've kind of worked that out now. So, um, but yeah, so that was kind of my story there. And it was just what was a the conflict. If you don't mind me asking, well, the conflict was that what I found myself doing, Danny, is I found myself conforming to what the group, what I thought the group would expect me to say and do. So you learn the language in AA, there's a certain language and I learned to talk the way so that people would approve of what I was saying. After a long time of doing that, I realized, you know what? This isn't me. And I started talking about my recovery in more practical terms. And I kind of, um, like, I don't have use for the term higher power and all this kind of stuff that they have in AA. And um, it wasn't accepted by a lot of people. And they insisted that I had to have a higher power, that I had to have something other than human beings. And uh, so, yeah. And so it was a different, it was a really weird situation because once I stopped conforming, these people who I knew for so long, I found out that they really didn't accept me for who I was the way I was. So anyway, I, um, what I did is I started another AA group that was secular and, uh, that took care of that problem. <laughs> so, but now I'm interested in, in, in things other than, other than AA. I can totally, um, relate to that because growing up, I was, I was taught, about a certain way that God was supposed to be or the higher power or whatever. And it was just like, ask and you just get whatever you ask for. And that kind of thing. Or if you're like, no, like bad things won't happen to you. And it's happened to you. It's because you're not a good Christian or something. These are the ideas I grew up with. And so, yeah. And now as a philosopher, or someone working on a master's in philosophy and talking to a bunch of philosophers, whether they're theist or atheist, my thought is if God does exist or a higher power or whatever, it's not the, it's not the sort of thing that, that most people think it is, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, but it definitely isn't a thing where quote unquote bad things or good things, things or, or success. Or it, it, they don't, they don't depend on this, on this God thing because there's so many good people that are just suffering. And there's so many bad people look at Trump and his, and his right. kids, like you're <laughs> right. going to tell me they're like wonderful people because they're all billionaires <laughs> no. and they're just like the bottom of, of, of humanity. <laughs> I agree. Uh, they're just horrible. And 
on the other view, it'd be like, well, they're successful. God must be shining upon them or something. And now, you know, and so definitely I can see where in AA, it, it, it'd be misleading to say that you need that because even outside of AA, that's not what's going on. There's people starving that, that believe in God. And there might be another thing that, that comes with it, like a Buddhist peace that maybe comes with believing in God and loving people or whatever. But it, uh, it's not results. It's not like you will get sobriety if you believe in God. It's like you might not. You might just die. Um, so that's the kind of thing that really helped me where I distanced myself from that old belief. And I looked inside, not only, uh, but more importantly, outside of with other people, like you're saying, like having other people was enough, but also inside where I'm just trying to think what's going on here. Can I just hold on? And what, what do I need to hold on here in this world around me? And it was other people as well. You know, my parents and everybody that supported. Well, I'll tell you what, I think this has been a great conversation and thank you very much for, for doing this. I really thanks so much, John. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.